Good evening, and welcome to the Bonafide Moto Show. Um, I'm your host, Joe Fleming, also known as Sotol right now. For those in South Africa, I think one of my favorite people to watch um, during the uh, lockdown was Skulk Beside Notes. <sighs> Day five. I, th- I think that's how I kind of introduced myself there. Sorry about that. Um, welcome to uh, week seven of the Bonafide Moto Show. We are on episode 19. This is going to be our last full week of the show. It has been so much fun um, to have this show every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday night and to get to hang out with you guys in some form or fashion um, but starting next week, we will start to slow the frequency down uh, a bit. But we'll chat more about that on Friday night when Al's on the show. We've got some um, some updates for everyone as to what to expect from Bonafide for the next uh, for the throughout the next year. Um, but we'll chat about that on Friday. Um, so this show is made possible by our partners at Motul and Jack Black. Um, when we do get liquor service going back around and we, when we do get to have our events, there will be Jack Black Lager at all the Bonafide MotoCo events and here on the Bonafide Moto Show. We look forward to that. Um, tonight's guest, we have Dutch from the Bike Shed. I think in my caption I put out the other day um, when we were sort of announcing who's going to be on the show this week. I said, if you're on Instagram and you're into motorcycles, there's a pretty damn good chance you are well aware of the bike shed in London. Um, to me, it seems to be sort of the um, the mecca, the epitome of a, a motorcycle hangout and, and one that we often get asked a, a lot here in South Africa, like, man, we need a bike shed here, um, something like it. So it's um, it's a really cool place. Um, and they're doing some really cool things at the moment uh, during the lockdown, um, doing what they can. And we're going to chat to Dutch about that tonight. And for if you have missed any of the episodes from episode nine, where we had Kingsley Holgate, um, they are all available on Apple Podcast. So you can go to Apple Podcast, subscribe and get notifi- notifications. I see my beard is a hot mess. Sorry, um, I was actually out riding today, and I got to enjoy a bit of beard flow for about three hours, a nice change. So apologies that my beard's looking a hot mess. But um, without further ado, oh, before I add Dutch, if you have questions at any point uh, of the show for Dutch or myself, um, you can click the little question mark down below. And the question will come through to me, and I will do my best to um, ask um, Dutch your question. So, without further ado, Dutch, coming for you, buddy. I did see you sent an invite. Just trying to push the button now. It's not. There we go. Dutch. Okay. It's connecting. Oh. Sweet. Hey, look at that. Wow. Rock and roll. Can you hear me? I can. I can. I wasn't expecting that to work, to be honest. We've, we've had, you know what? 
So far, I think we've had about a 94% success rate. Oh, um, like all statistics made up on the spot. I like that. 94, not 95, 94 is good. It was about, I think we had two, two issues, two. No, I think it was close. It was close. Yeah. So we've had, what we learned on the show was that if someone, we had someone whose Instagram wasn't fully up to date and that sort of messed up the connection. And I think that was it. That was actually the problem for both, both, both times. So that's why I added to sort that out ahead of cool. time. Cool. Well, this is good. So I'm all yours. Um, and Dutch, it looks like I know where you are. Are you yeah, at the I'm, bike shed? Yeah, I am in the shed. It's a little empty. It's a oh. bit depressing without people in it. But yeah, I'm sitting here. Sheesh. Yeah, I recognize that couch. Um, so Dutch, it's, um, it's great to have you on the show. You know, I, I, I met you, it was about four years ago, about a few weeks ago. I got a, a memory on Facebook that popped up. Um, I know I lost you there for a second. But it's been about four years since I popped in and uh, you guys have been tearing up uh, London and it's just be becoming more and more popular at the bike shed. And uh, kudos to you guys for what you're doing there. No, thank you. It's hard work, but it's worth it. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. And um, before I get into the bike shed itself, I wanted to find out about you and your background into motorcycling like where have you been riding since a kid like how did you kind of evolve now to becoming the head of the bike shed um I, I was always a bike rider i grew up in a in a small town outside london um which was pretty much split half and half between the country and the city half the people who lived there were farmers and the other half were people who commuted into london but it was a small enough place where when when i was 17 which was a fucking long time ago if you wanted to get around, you got a motorcycle. It was that simple. You turn 17, you get a bike. No one bought cars. You, that wasn't a thing. No. And uh, we were into dirt bikes. Um, so, you know, you got your 125cc on a provisional license. And because we lived mostly in the country, we all got dirt bikes. And no. that was the time when they were bringing out bikes that were kind of fake motocross bikes, scramblers, I guess, or as we called them, uh, trail bikes. Yeah. Um, and I had a what did I have? I had a Suzuki TS125X. So I started riding that when I was 17, literally on the day of my birthday, I got a bike, I think. And um, yeah, that was how I got around. And so bikes literally meant freedom. Yeah. And they were literally, you know, um, the, the expression of being able to go where you want, when you want, but also straight away, we were customizing them. So when you buy mm. a bike like that, you start ditching the heavy bits and the ugly bits. And, you know, and if you've got a two stroke, you get some boys and reeds on there and you, put on a better pipe with different expansion chamber and you get rid of the baffles when they had them in those yeah. days. And so we were customizing our bikes the day we got them, changing stickers. I mean, obviously we're boys, yeah. we, like, we like stickers, right? Yeah. So that got me into it. And then, um, yeah, all my life, a motorcycle was my preferred mode of transport. And when I, when I kind of, I guess I grew up and moved to London throughout all my life and all the different jobs I had here, I always used to get around on a motorcycle because it made London into a tiny village mm. because you get across London really quick. Yeah. And, uh, and I got used to exchanging sort of fields and trees and forests and back roads for big city back roads. Mm. And with, um, when you were customizing, did you, did you learn how to fix bikes on your own by trial and error? Did your dad teach you? Like, how did you 
kind of learn those skills? Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if I ever learned those skills. Um, I mean, I'm a pretty poor mechanic. Yeah. I mean, it would be really simple. I mean, I, I remember I had my I had my one two five. No, actually, no, I had a Mako two fifty, and I remember it stopped working. So I took the engine apart, and mm. uh, there was a I took the top off the head, and there was a big hole in the piston. So I just pulled the barrel off and pulled bits off, and you know I can't remember who told me about circlips, and I, you know, disassembled the whole thing. And I remember going into my nearest town, Horsham, with this piston into this bike shop and saying, I need one of these. So the yeah. guy gave me a piston and said, you need some new rings? And I was like, okay. So I took, <laughs> it, took it back and then someone said I should wash out the oil and make sure there were no bits of piston in the gearbox. So I changed the oil and I put it back together. It took me a day and then it worked. But wow. I know, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. I had yeah, some yeah. friends who would say, you know, lending me spanners and things, but uh, I never learned any skills. and. And it, um, I wouldn't really say I was even customizing. I was fixing and taking things off I didn't like. Mostly it was about throwing things away. I didn't often add things to a bike. I normally took them off. Yeah. Um, I remember when I got my first Sportster, it had, I got it from some guy that was like, I think it was purple at the time. And it had all kinds of extra pieces that uh, just crap. And what was nice was kind of like what you said was that I just started taking things off. And it's easy to take things off. You just start finding bolts and disconnecting them. Um, and then when it came to, like, we had stripped everything down. Then when it came to the customizing and building of, of, of a new frame, I needed help. Um, and still to this day, I'm probably the worst mechanic, like, in our group of friends. Um, but that's why I carry a camera so that I can take photos of people fixing my bike or other bikes. I'm not the one you call when you need help with your bike. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not that guy. I mean, I, I, mean I, I was never really what I would call a custom builder. I just didn't like the bikes the manufacturers made. So if yeah. I thought the indicators were ugly and the plate hanger was ugly and the pipes were heavy and I didn't like the lights, I just changed them. I, I wasn't doing anything noble or clever. I just didn't like what I was given. And if mm. I wanted to change the color, I'd change the color. I suddenly... You know, you buy a dirt bike and you change all the plastics for a different color and now it's unique. You get them from, you know, aftermarket stuff from a service and you change the decals. And, you know, for me, I was throwing stuff away and making stuff unique. I never thought of it as customizing at all, ever. Yeah. Just kind of making it your own. Yeah. Um, and um, so, so sort of leading up prior, prior to the bike shed, um, I guess sort of, what was Dutch known for? What, what were you doing with your life sort of leading up to before you had planned out the bike shed? Um, I had two kind of stages in my young adulthood or my adulthood. Um, the first part of my life, I was um, running around trying to be creative um, and trying to make uh, a living in London. Um, I moved to London when I was about 16 and I did lots of strange things. I was always, a, I always wanted to do stuff that was useful and interesting. I spent about three or four years in the Guardian Angels, which was a bit weird. Um, so uh, that kind of weird bunch of people that go around on the tubes in New York. I did it for a while in New York and in Amsterdam, and I did it in London. So, and, so, I, don't, so I don't know what the Guardian Angels are? Okay, the Guardian Angels, basically tube line vigilantes. Oh. Guys in berets trying to stop people robbing people. So this Amazing. is like the 80s. 
This is the mid eighties. So like, so, kind of, was it like punk rock scene type? Yeah. Type? Oh yeah, yeah. So you you have to watch a film called The Magnificent Thirteen, which okay. is about Curtis Sliwa in the Guardian Angels in New York, and it was started in the Bronx. So I had this whole period of time where I was trying to find belonging and being part of something, and that was where I got the nickname Dutch. Okay. Uh, so that that was the birth of Dutch, I guess, and it also taught me about loyalty and friendship and those kind of groupings of people. Um, and a lot of the people in the Guardian Angels rode bikes. A lot of them were bikers. Um, and then after that period of time, which was three, four years, I guess, um, I got into broadcasting, into television. So I worked for MTV for a long time and then the Extreme Sports Channel, Cartoon Network, Bravo TV, a whole bunch of TV channels, Virgin Media. So I became uh, a media person, a TV person. Mm. So I was a, uh, I was a producer, then I was a director, then I was a creative director. And then I moved around in the TV business and I was in television for about 26 years as wow. a grown up TV professional with a, in the end, with an office and a PA and a, you know, and a, and a breakout meeting room and a nice phone that you could, I mean, it was, it was that whole kind of corporate setup, yeah. corporate media yeah. setup. Yeah. Um, in a, and I ended up in an advertising agency. Mm. So I was a creative director doing that. And, uh, and then, uh, there was, but there was always, you know, I was always a biker. Okay. You know, so I turned up to work on a bike and, you know, one of the criteria for me in taking a job was where do I park the bike? Have I got, you know, have I got posh parking for a motorcycle where no one's going to yeah. steal it? So yeah. any job I went for had to have a good underground car park. Otherwise I wasn't interested. <laughs> yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was what I was known for before the bike shed. Okay. I, and I, I figured you were going to say something along uh, creative or marketing because I've seen um, on, on your Facebook that you oftentimes put out uh, designs and ideas for um, whether it be the festival that you guys had last year, or t-shirt design. Um, I always see you kind of putting out those first concepts. So I figured you had some sort of background in that arena, which. Yeah. Makes... Yeah. But in a weird way, I, I was never a designer. Um, okay. I, I was very, I, I was lucky enough to get to the stage where I was a creative director and I had designers working for me. So I had, I had animators, producers, directors, um, illustrators. So my job was to tell them what was good and what wasn't good. I was, my job was to push them. When you do your own design work, you can't critique it. You can't go back to the brief, go, why am I making this? Who's it for? Does it meet the brief? You know, does it tick all the boxes that are required for this job? You get into it, you get too caught up in what you're drawing or creating or producing or shooting. And mm. so my job as a creative director was to say, well, yeah, but that's good, but does it do the job? Yeah. Um, and I was very envious of people that could shoot and could edit and, and could draw and could animate and create logos and designs. Um, I'm actually a really poor designer. I'm a poor cameraman. <laughs> I'm a fairly poor director. Um, my job was getting the most out of those people to make them really, really good by pushing yeah. them. So, so the as I, yeah, but so as I, yeah, I had the vision, but as I became somebody making stuff, I never really liked what I make. So I designed the bike shed logo and all, most of the logos we have and the posters and, and the t-shirts we do, I do a lot of them, not all of them, but I do probably 90% of them. And I never like my own stuff. I hate it because I look at it and I go, I wouldn't sign off on that. That's not good <laughs> enough. But, well, you know, so it's kind of a bit weird. And when I put it out there, it's really, I'm kind of, I need to see it from the outsider's point of view. So when I put something up and say, what do you think of this? 
I'm forcing myself to see it as an outsider. It does, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I think we're, and also like we're our own biggest critics, um, and like at least I am, and most people are, is that you, you don't like your work, and but other people do. Yeah. And but we're we're hard on ourselves, um, which it it happens. Yeah. Um, um, so then the big question is how how did how did the bike shed come about? I'd love, I mean, because we, we get this question all the time, like we need a bike shed here in South Africa. Like how, how, how did, how did it happen? How did it start? It's a kind of, um, it's a, it's a, an organic story. It, it grew from, I guess, the times that we're in now. When I was, uh, I guess it was about 2000, 2011. And, uh, and I was getting, I was, a, I was a bike rider and I was getting into faster and faster bikes. Um, I, I was, uh, had a, what did I have at that time? I had a KTM 950 Supermoto, and then I got a Super Duke, and then I got a Super Duke R, and then I was about to buy an RC8R. Okay. So I was, and I was turning more and more into one of those Power Ranger sports bike riders, but it wasn't <laughs> really who I was. I was a dude with tattoos and wore jeans and boots and leather jackets. I wasn't that Power Ranger dude on a sports bike. It didn't really... Yeah. It kind of clashed a bit with who I was. And also I was a creative. So I was also following BikeXIF just started their, their daily email. I think it was one email every day. It was a newsletter. And suddenly there was a whole crowd of creative people I knew who were looking at bikes because they look cool. And suddenly it was cool to look at a Triumph Bonneville that had been customized. And there were brands out there like Cafe Racer Dreams and the early days of Deus with W650s and things doing really cool stuff. And I thought, you know what? That's cooler than buying an RC8. That's more interesting than a Fireblade. That, that, you know, and, and also these bikes, they do kind of work. They're not just old shitters. Some of these bikes yeah. have brakes and they go around corners. So I was quite intrigued by this custom world that was part about engineering and part about creative, about aesthetics, because, you know, I was a designer, creative person myself. So um, I was getting into that. And my wife, Vicky, for my birthday, bought me a Ducati Sport Classic 1000. And if you remember the film Tron, the new one or the newer one, where they yeah. open, the, open the credits on the, the hero riding that Ducati Sport Classic 1000. It was the Ellie edition in black okay. and gold. And he had that Fleeder rear light uh, LED strip at the back. Yes. And uh, he, he's racing through wherever it was. I can't remember what city it was. And I saw that bike and I was like, what the fuck is that bike? Because it's a Ducati L-Twin got the monster engine in there so it's a high performance modern bike in old school kind of clothes but not old school and vicky bought me one she was like ride that instead of riding all these stupid sports bikes and i started loving that bike and customizing it straight away i was looking at what you could get for aftermarket with the seat and handlebars and lighting and there were there's a whole community of people who had bought these bikes and uh, and i started blogging about that um, I, I was a creative director at a media agency and I only worked four days a week. I had a good contract. My Fridays were free. My weekends were free. So I was fettling the bike and I started writing this story on a blog called Full Tilt. But at the same time, a whole bunch of uh, my friends were doing stuff with bikes as well. So there was Adam and Hugo from Untitled Motorcycles were building bikes, doing these kind of, I guess, urban brat style BMWs. And a friend of mine, Ian, who was at BBH, had an, a sport classic. Um, I had a few friends with Sport Classics. Uh, my friend Ben was getting into his Triumphs and customizing those. And 
And then I met with Tim and Kev from Spirit of the 70s who were doing these 70s style bikes with modern suspension. And I said, you know what? We should all combine our stories and put them in one blog. Mm. And they were like, yeah, that's a great idea because they were all blogging about their, their stuff as well. So, and we kind of had a big argument about what we should call it. And I said, well, it's like being in your shed in the back of your garden. It's your bike shed. Um, but, let, but we're in a club. We're like a group of guys or whoever doing this stuff. So bike shed motorcycle club. So I created a website and, and we learned how to put it together on WordPress myself. And then I did all the work. None of them did anything. <laughs> so they did their blogs and I stole from their blogs the, the good bits because they had loads of stuff that was really boring. Yeah. And, and I tarted up their pictures and fixed them on Photoshop and retold their stories and then had this blog of their stuff, my stuff, my sport classic build, other stuff I was into. And then Facebook happened. So I put the blog onto Facebook and I realized that although um, Bike Exif had these really picture perfect bikes where it was like, oh, there's a bike with, it's got flat side carbs and it's got these wheels and it's got a tank from a, you know, an RG, whatever, 250. And I was like, yeah, but why? Who's that guy? Where are they? There were also other people on Facebook who took shitty photos, who couldn't tell a story. And, uh, and I, I started emailing or messaging those people and saying, hey, can I share your bike? on my Facebook page okay. and they loved that. So I started sharing other people's bikes and it was people like Cafe Racer Dreams, Down and Out Motorcycle, uh, Down and Out Cafe Racers, all these underdog builders that knew how to build bikes but didn't know how to take a good photo and couldn't yeah. tell a story. And also a lot of them that weren't English speaking. So there were a lot of French builders, a lot of Spanish builders mm -hmm. and they weren't getting onto Bike Exif because Chris was like, oh, you've got your image at 825 by 425 and it's gotta be clean yeah. background. And I was like, I don't care. I'll fix your photo. I'll Photoshop it. Exactly. And, um, and so we became the underdog blog to the cool, shiny blog that was Bike Exif. And then there was Pipeburn yeah. and there was Return of the Cafe, Cafe Racers. And there was all these others. And we were the underdog shitty blog. And I thought it would be punk rock and white on black and all a bit rough around the edges. And it became a real community. And uh, so, so um, that became an online thing. And we ended up with, 50, 60, 70,000 followers on this group blog where I was sharing other people's stories, not just mine. And I had a lot of friends involved in that. And we, you know, our bike shed motorcycle club would meet at a pub every Thursday. And, uh, and I remember it was time to do the, to go to the, for the UK bike show at Birmingham, November, freezing cold, Birmingham's a shitty place. And I'm surrounded by all these guys who spend all their money on bikes. They're all media creatives and cameramen and directors and writers. And it was like, well, who's going to go to the bike show? And they were like, why? What for? It's just a sausage factory full of men. You know, it's a trade fair. You see bikes that are in the dealers that we don't want to buy because we want cool custom bikes. The only women are there that are there are paid to be there dressed in Lycra with logos on them, kind of skanky yeah. with too much makeup on. Why, what are we going? The food's shit. And, and we were like, well, we should have a show. What would the bike shed show be like if we got all the bikes that we write about? I say we, they weren't doing anything, but yeah. that we all were enthusiastic about. Um, what if we did a show with us, our bikes and our friends? And uh, so the next week I turned up to the pub. I said, hey, I've booked a venue. And they were like, what? And I was like, well, remember that conversation we had last week? And they were like, no, we were drinking beers. I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about. And I was like, no, no, we booked a venue. We booked a couple of railway arches in Shoreditch. My wife, Vicky, was in, she worked for media companies as well and uh, Ministry of Sound, and she did events. And, and she said, I'll organize the event. 
So we had these railway arches and uh, it was kind of November, December. And we said, right, this May, so that was going to be, this was the end of 2012. May 2013, we're doing a, a custom motorcycle show where we're going to invite all these bikes, two railway arches in Shoreditch with really good food, really good coffee, cocktail bars or, or you know, proper bars where you could get a real drink, uh, mm. sofas, places to sit. We'll have like a barber shop because everyone's getting their beard trims and haircuts. We'll have like a tattoo studio, a tattoo pop up. Let's just make a really cool thing. And, uh, and it just happened. We, we got together, everybody threw a bit of money in and, uh, and we did a free show, 55 bikes and 3000 people turned up and we were like, fuck, this is a thing. Wow. So that was the show. And then the show went so well that um, we thought we better do another one because it was the same year that the Distinguished Gentleman's Ride started. And I got oh. to know Mark Hower because okay. uh, that was uh, September 2012. And I'd done that ride because when I saw what he was doing, I said, if you do one in Australia, I'll do it in London. So we became yep. buddies at that point. I became the London guy and um, we did that first ride. But also Wheels and Waves started that year. And I think maybe it was, wasn't Dirtquake, it was Rollerburn. So okay. all these things, this kind of zeitgeist thing was going on. Deus was exploding, Bike Exif wow. was there. You had all these online Bike, uh, uh, bike Exif copies. So we were like, we better do another show. We better own this space and do mm. a better job. Because um, everybody said it was the best motorcycle show they'd ever been to. And we were like, fuck, you know, let's hang on to this. Um, so that October, we did our second show, same year. And 5,000 people turned up, a few more bikes. We had a third railway arch. Uh, Brad Pitt came. And everyone's like, oh, you've got a tweet that Brad Pitt turned up. And I was like, fuck no, you don't say anything. He's yeah, here yeah. as a biker. He's, you know, he's not here to promote film. He's, you know, mm. he's there incognito. He's here he's filming. Just he's just Brad. Brad. This, guy, you know, this guy's turned up called Brad. Ignore it. And um, so that was nice. Um, and then we were two shows in. But in that second show, everybody was like, you cannot pack this up on a Monday. You know, you set up this pop-up club, clubhouse for biking, this kind of emporium of kind of brilliantness with this incredible crowd. And then you, you pack it all away. It should be here all the time. And um, there were a few people kept coming up to me and going, what is this? And we're like, we were like, it's a hobby. It's just a hobby. We've got a blog and this is our show. And, uh, you know, we're not making any money, but, you know, it's kind of cool. And they said, this should be your job. And I was like, no, we've got jobs. You know, me and my wife worked in media. It was like, we're not going to give up our jobs and do some stupid ass thing that's not going to make any money. Um, but people were like, no, this is a thing. So after talking to a, quite a few friends and people in business, they said, look, if you were going to do this, we'll back you. So we started with a couple of people who said, we'll put money into you doing a business plan and uh and we put a business plan together and the idea was that we'd hire someone to run it okay. so we'd create ah, this amazing yeah. club cafe bar shop just like our show but seven days a week same thing as we got now um but as we put it together me and vicky got more and more into it and it took a long time to put the business plan together and what sort of venue we'd have. And, and we really put a lot of effort in. Having both been business people and creative people, we knew how to tell a story and how to sell an idea, put a pitch together, put a business plan together. We'd both had, you know, 
worked for huge companies, for Time Warner, for Viacom, for, you know, for News Corp. So we understood the dynamics of a business, yeah. even though we were creative bike people. And we persuaded, in the end, about 40 people to give us some money. And we used that money to build the bike shed. We created a pool of shareholders, all of them, almost all of them are bikers or car nuts or something. Interesting people, really cool, really nice people, our founder members. And um, so it's kind of like curated crowdfunding. Um, and we built the bike shed and we opened in November 2015. Um, and that makes it sound easy. It was really, really, really fucking difficult. We ran out of money twice. Our yeah. builders walked out when we couldn't pay them. Uh, we, you know, we made it up as we went along. There was no architect. There was no designer. We drew everything on pieces of paper. We built it on site with Polish builders. Um, they mm -hmm. fucked a lot of it up. They did a lot of things that hero were heroic and amazing. Yeah. And we made it up as we went along. We hired the wrong people. We didn't know how to run a restaurant or a bar. The first year was insane. Yeah. But we were full from day one and everyone loved it. And that's what, like, I mean, and that's kind of where, where I'm at is following my passion and, and motorcycling and, and traveling. And, and it sounds like your first year at the bike shed is, it's cool, it's your passion. It's something that you guys love doing with the shows. And yeah, you may not know how to run a restaurant. You may not have all this uh, knowledge of what it takes to build a place like that but you're willing to put in the work to try to figure it out along the way. Um, you'll make mistakes, but you had, if, if, when you've got people coming since day one, there's something to be said about that, that you're like, you know what? I think they're gonna be patient and they're gonna keep coming no matter what. And I mean, it's, it's an amazing place. And um, I can only imagine how many people from all over the world come there and share their stories and the kids that come there and it becomes something that a lot of people will never forget. Um, it's a really, it's a really cool spot. And, um, um, and we, we, I saw Hen we had Henry on the show a couple of weeks ago and I saw he had done his um, start and stop from his around the trip or around the world trip from your place as well. So, I mean, you guys must get tons of people and stories. There's probably endless stories from the bike show. Yeah, it's great. I mean, that's the thing. What we, I mean, the way I always describe it to people is first we built a community online, then we gave them an annual event, and then we realized that same community needed a home. And we gave them a home. And in all, in all the jobs I've done, most of them, my job was to not be the target market. You know, when I was at Cartoon Network, I had to make product for basically ten, a 10 year old boy. I had to be in the mind of a 10 year old boy. So I yeah. wasn't making anything for me. I was making things for somebody else. When you work in marketing and advertising, you don't make it for you. You make it for other people. This thing is, for me and for Vicky, we're the customers. What do we mm. eat? What do we like? What do we want to see? What do we want on the walls? Where do we want to sit? How much would we pay for a steak? What do we want to drink? You yeah. know, would we let that guy cut our hair? Those are the mm. questions that come up. So it becomes easy when you're the customer. So everything we did was based on this being our club and our community, and we are one of the customers. So we yeah. built it with that in mind. So although at the beginning we didn't know how to run a restaurant or a shop or an online retail business 
or a barbershop or at the beginning, you know, even how to put on shows. Now we're really good at that. We had to learn in reverse how to deliver what we wanted as customers. Yeah. And, uh, and that just takes focus and attention to detail and being very hands-on and yeah. never stepping too far away from your community, which is why we're here all the time. And we know all our members, most of our customers, I mean, we have two and a half thousand people through our doors every week, or hopefully we will again soon when lockdown yeah. is finally over. Mm. But, you know, we, we, we know those people, we know who they are. Yeah. And, uh, and even globally, I feel like we're connected to all of our followers and all of the people that interact with the bike shed. They're part of our family. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and that's what it's, it seems to be is, is like a family and, you know, to, to, to have all those members that are coming there all the time. And um, especially that you guys say that the, what, what the bike shed puts out is what you guys sort of approve and it's things that you like and you appreciate. And that's when your customers as well know and they can appreciate that because they're like, well, if, if Dutch and, and Vicky approved it, then it's probably going to be pretty damn good. They're not going to let us just have average food and average things there. So um, they're getting the best of what's there in London. Um, Dutch, I'm just going to switch to 4G. Um, can you, we still good? Okay. Um, Does that mean you can see all of my I spots? There we go. No, I actually haven't gotten any <laughs> notifications. I haven't seen any questions or the feed pop up. It seemed like my Wi-Fi maybe kept or something happened. So um, now I'm catching up on comments and seeing things down below. But as long as I didn't lose the connection before, it's fine. So, oh, good. Um, so yeah, you had the Bike Shed London. And at what point did you guys say, you know what? We need another one of these. From day one, we always knew that. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of, you know, our community's global. The bike community's global. And um, London's a tiny community. You know, I mean, biking mm -hmm. in England is difficult. Biking in London is harder. Hanging onto a motorcycle in London is impossible unless you live in Fort Knox. And, uh, you know, there are 55 motorcycle thefts every day in London. Sure. It's not pretty. And you can't get insurance if you're under 40 on a decent bike, unless you've right. got a garage and a shit ton of money. So we knew that if we could make it work here, we ought to be able to make it work in places where they actually like motorcycles and the weather's not shit. Yeah. So for me, it was always obvious that we should be in places like Barcelona, Lisbon, somewhere nice in Germany. We should be in, a, in the US. So straight away, we thought this is something that should be global. We could be in Australia, we could be in South Africa, we could be in a whole bunch of places. So we always knew, but we thought we'd better get it right in London. And, and also, if you can do this in London, you can do it anywhere. So we always had our eye on going to California first because it's English speaking. Um, it's here. No, my phone is here. I'm using it. Sorry, Vicky's just asking me where my phone is. She it's over I'm here, Vicky. My laptop. Um, so... We always knew we were going to do it. It just took a really long time because yeah. we had to, you know, we had to put a massive business plan together. We had to persuade more people that we knew what we were doing before we knew what we were doing. You know, we, we had to prove ourselves and then we had to find more money from more backers, more bikers who would say, yeah, I'm going to risk a bit of money on you crazy assholes doing this in, in the US. And that's yeah. not easy. It's a long story. 
and it's taken us two and a half years to get to where we are now and you know and we're getting close to finishing the build in los angeles and we're kind of there but it's been a really really long journey yeah i'm sure and that's and it's not like it's a small place um and to kind of move to open up like another i'll call it a flagship to open up something like that in los angeles takes a lot of work um and i think it's what los angeles needs and there's definitely a huge gap for that um and i've seen the rent the photo renderings of the place and what it's going to be like and i mean to have that in la is going to be fantastic because you'll get your motorcyclist you'll get your car enthusiasts to come by um there's so much in la and it's got such a such an amazing culture um in la itself that's i i, I think people are going to be banging on those doors to to come open it up It'll... yeah it's, i mean it's huge there the, the you know motorcycle culture in in california is bigger than anywhere else in the world um it's their passion it's normal to ride a motorcycle out there it's not some weird outdoor activity having a bike is just a thing whether it's a dirt bike sports bike adventure bike retro bike whatever people have a motorcycle in their garage and uh and and a lot of those people who ride they love it there are a lot of motorcycle destinations just yeah. in and around LA, never mind the rest of California. So many of the brands that we love are out there um, yeah. and the people that we've got to know really well and, uh, and organizations and groups. And it's just rich pickings. It's where a lot of our crowd are. So, and they've been asking us to go to LA for three years. Like when wow. are you bringing this to LA? And also mm. there's a big connection between London and Los Angeles, especially Absolutely. if you're in kind of media and creative business. Yeah. So a lot of our people from London are always going to LA and a lot of LA people come to London and they're all going, well, why isn't this in Los Angeles? And we're, we were always like, yep, yeah, we're working on it. And now yeah. we're pretty mm. much there. Good. Um, I'm, uh, I, I used to live in San Diego, so I'm, I wish I was still there so that I could take a two hour ride up to go to the bike mm. shed. Um, but years from now, I'll go visit that one. Um, the other thing that I, I found really fascinating and that I loved seeing from you guys last year was the festival. Um, there's always a lot of motorcycle shows and um, these big events that take place, but nothing that quite ticked all the boxes like you guys ticked with the festival. Um, what was it that you guys said? I mean, was it, I think that in itself, you said, there's all these other bike shows or these festivals where guys get to race around the track and they're professionals. Why can't the average guy just go out and do this? Like, how did, how did that con concept come about as well? I think it came out because I really loved the early days of, of this, this scene. When, um, when Dirtquake, if, if you guys know what Dirtquake is, mm. when Dirtquake started, the, the good thing about Dirtquake was me and my buddies took our bikes and we raced each other. So I'd be on track and knowing that my friend Ian, who is a little bit quicker than me, if I could stay on his back wheel, I'm doing good. And yeah. my, my buddy Tim, I think I'm a bit quicker than Tim. So hopefully he's behind me. And yeah. it was all have a go heroes. Uh, everybody was involved and you could dress as a Viking or whatever, chicken. And it was good mm. fun, but it was strictly amateur. But if you're a spectator, that's really shit because we're yeah. not fast. We're slow. So as Dirtquake got bigger and better and they needed an audience and they wanted to get it on TV and they wanted sponsorship, there was no good watching amateurs like me riding round a track. Mm. You know, it doesn't look impressive. It feels good. Yeah. <laughs> you, you feel like your back end's right out and you're, 
yeah, know, yeah. sliding around. <laughs> and then you look at photos, it looks like you're going fucking shopping to Sainsbury's. Yeah. So it doesn't look cool. It looks distinctly uncool. So yeah. um, Dirtquake outgrew us. And I missed that have a go aspect. And the other thing was um, we would do track days. And one of the things I love about um, our scene is you could have a Triumph motorcycle or, or an old BMW, a, you know, an, an interesting or a Ducati Sport Classic, take that to a track day. And um, you could surprise a few people on sports bikes. You could have a lot of fun. And wow. I always thought that track days were really shit environments where, the, you know, again, the food is crap and there's nowhere to hang out. You do your track time and there's all this time in between your track time. Well, what do you do? And, um, and I thought, why doesn't somebody open up an experience that's somewhere between old school dirt quake of ride inappropriate bikes on a track, but a tarmac track rather than a dirt oval and add all the festival cool elements that we have in our show with really good food and good kind of hanging out and retail and pop-up spaces and bars and coffee and, you know, mm. pop-up barbershop and all the other stuff we have, but where anyone can get on track with their bike and every bike can go on track except sports bikes. Well, the only, one, the only sports bikes we allowed were retro sports bikes. Right. Like we had the Carburetor Cup. So an old okay. Carburetor Fireblade, that's okay. Or a GSXR 750 slab side, that's okay. Um, so you could take all these different types of bike. So we had the, you know, and, and also they had a, an off-road area as well. that was kind of um, like a motocross thing. So we did the Dirt Bike Cup. We did the Easy Rider Cup for the baggers and the cruisers, Street Bike Cup. Then the Cafe Racer Cup, which was strict cafe racers. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then we did the L Plate Cup for all the learners, people on 125s. Um, and it, part of it was the spirit of everyone have a go, um, yeah. but also the spirit of um, experiencing race conditions, but with no pressure. So yeah. you line up on a grid, there's lights, <laughs> there's a guy with a flag. You've done timed laps all day in practice. Oh. And you're on the grid in order of your time. So you know the guy in front is faster than you. The guy behind is slower than you. You're in good shape. You don't have to win. You don't have to crash. Um, you're just going around in circles, but you're having a race. It's a real race. And, uh, but you just do it under track day conditions. And uh, it was just the best experience ever. Um, and, uh, and I think it was something that we probably had in our minds for three or four years before we did it. Yeah. It looked um, it looked like fun and, and and like Al said, they're family friendly as well. Like yeah. it looked like, and I think you summed it up is that it's just you're on the start line and you're just out there to have fun, but you feel like a professional. Yeah, like it it must be. I I was trying to actually visualize someone sitting there with the lights turning red, yellow, and just trying to be in that position because I'm sure it was a highlight of a lot of people's lives to be yeah. able to go on a track like that. Um, yeah, especially special. on a bike they built themselves. You, you know, you've got a guy who's right. sitting there on an, you know, an early 80s CB750 with clip-ons <laughs> and an exhaust pipe they made. And they're on a yeah. track, on a track day, on a grid. And, you know, and the, the red lights come on and your heart is in your mouth. And then ahead of you is one corner that everybody's trying to get to first. Mm. But on the other hand, if you go around in circles at the back, no one gives a shit. Yeah. <laughs> no one gives a shit. And we wow. had almost no, no one hurt themselves. A few people rode off track, but no real crashes. Okay. Nobody, no one in an ambulance all day for what, two, two days over a weekend. 
with about 14 or 15 races, no crashes. Great. No, no, no nasty crashes, just running yeah. off into the gravel. Right, yeah, just kicking it too much, wasn't quite sure about it. Yeah, little slides, nothing yeah, serious. Nothing it was epic, it was one of the best things ever. And, and also unique because no one else was doing that. It didn't look like Dirt Quake, it didn't look like Wheels and no. Waves, it didn't look like anything else, it, it was his own thing. Yeah, it was the Bike Shed Festival. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, like it. yeah, and also we all ride on tarmac every day. So why not have fun on tarmac? Yeah. yeah. Um, and Dutch, um, obviously now with things as they are, um, the bike shed is currently closed and um, we, we kind of all find ourselves doing things out of the norm, like this show. We've yeah. never had a live show. Um, and what we noticed from you guys is that you are currently giving all of your riders a, an opportunity to go out and ride and do something good through a volunteer service. Can you talk a bit about that and what's, what you guys are doing and, and kind of how, that's, how that got started? Um, yeah, I mean, we were kind of closing up the shop, pretty depressing. Um, and, and of course, all of our community and our regulars and our members coming by going, look, this sucks, what are we going to do? And uh, a few people were talking about the fact, oh, you know, I've got my grandfather up in wherever. Is there anyone we know up there that could check in on him, make sure he was okay or take him some food? And um, Vicky was like, well, we've got this huge community of people globally and around the UK and in London as well who are really close to. Why aren't we all, why don't we use our bikes for, you know, looking out for other people? Why don't we see if we can help? and get food or go shopping? Why don't we use our network? And um, I thought about it for a while and created a Facebook page. And I was like, okay, do you know what? Let's see who wants to do this. So we've, all these people were out there making PPE, free personal protective equipment. Same bye to Stu. See you, Stu. Um, They're making face masks and shields and scrubs and giving mm. away gloves. And all these people were running around on foot and on bicycles and in cars and in vans trying to give them out. And I was like, motorcycles are perfect for that. First responders use motorcycles for a reason, yeah. you know, to get somewhere quick. And I was like, I thought, let's, let's see if other people are into this. So I just put up a Facebook page. I didn't even connect it to Bike Shed. Just put up a Facebook, I called it Bike Shed Community Response. Okay. And uh, within about three days, 500 people joined the page, joined the group. Jeez. And I was like, oh. Yeah, it was a group. And I was like, oh, shit. What, that's too many people. Well, you can't organize this on Facebook. So yeah. um, one of our members said, oh, I work with this company called Wavestone Consulting, and they do digital stuff, and they want to do some good stuff. They've seen what you're doing on your Facebook group and want to know if they can help. And I said, yeah, sure, we need an app. We need someone like Uber to give us access to Uber so yeah. that we can use the app to task our riders with jobs. So... They spent a couple of weeks working with us. We went through about five or six different app companies to say, could we have your app for free? And can you remove all the money part and let us use it? And we're going to give out, we're going to distribute, pick up and distribute PPE and food and all this stuff. And we went through a load of stuff. And, and in the end, we found this app company called Gopher stepped up and said, yep, yeah, we'll do it. We'll work with you. And we spent uh, about three weeks making the app work for volunteers whilst the crowd grew. We were approached by an organization called Team Rubicon and they're, ex, uh, they're military veterans who go, they, they have this uh, disaster emergency response organization 
And some I of them are bike shed members. They're pretty cool. They're, if, you know, if there's a, a tidal wave in Sierra Leone or an earthquake or a tornado, they, they go out there and they dig people out the rubble. They, they're those guys. And they said, like we love what you're doing. Um, we want to do something in the UK. We've got Team Rubicon UK, all these military people. A lot of them ride bikes. A lot of them actually are bike shed members. Um, yeah. Let's partner up and we'll help you find work. You know, we'll help find tasks. So we teamed up with Team Rubicon. So we're working with Wavestone, Gopher and Team Rubicon. And then Indian Motorcycle said, well, we'll back you. And we said, well, we need bibs and stickers and shit. And they were like, yep, cool, we'll pay for that. And uh, we created the app with Gopher and we went live about three weeks ago. We've got, it's quite difficult to get onto the app. You have to sign up, but we've got, we had a thousand volunteers. We've got about 600 people now on the app. Uh, I think today we did about 90 jobs all over the UK. People doing runs from Liverpool to Aberdeen, like six hours each way on runs and trips, giving out PPE, scrubs, masks, components, uh, wow. some food stuff we've just got into we've done some medical stuff we were doing we're, we're now signed up we've got a lot of um, criminal we've got criminal background checks done on a group of people so that we can do pharmaceutical and medicine distribution and today right. we launched a new project an initiative called um i can't remember what it's called now it's called the community it's the uh oximeter response so it's the so basically, there's been a problem with people who have uh, coronavirus. Um, okay. They think they're okay. They feel a bit breathless and they call an ambulance and the ambulance comes by and they're all right. Um, but they're actually suffering from what's called silent hypoxia. So their blood oxygen's going down and down and down. And overnight, they die. Wow. So there are some doctors in the NHS who said, look, this is stupid. We should be giving out oximeters, oxygen probes for free. So we created this emergency oximeter response group within our community of volunteers working with the NHS from the Royal Free Hospital. And now we've got a group of DBS criminal checked volunteer riders and we get a call out. We go to the hospital, pick up a probe, take the probe to someone's house as part of a proper first respondents emergency um, sort of activation tasked through 111 or 999. And then, uh, and then those people hang on to those oxygen saturation monitors and they can self-monitor and see if they need to go to hospital or not. So we kicked that off today and uh, that's just happening right now. So everything's a little bit hectic. And the whole of this venture has become pretty much full-time for us and most of the Bike Shed crew. So all we do now is deal with lost careers and confused jobs, missing packages, um, <laughs> people that you know, need scrubs, people that make scrubs um, uh, and masks and all the other stuff. And now we're, now we're doing 24-7 hospital pickups and uh, taking oxygen probes to people who can't breathe properly. Wow. And how does, how does that feel? Feels great. I mean, it's fantastic to play an active part in the fight against COVID-19. It feels good to show bikers in a really good light to the community, to show that bike people are good people and they're dependable and reliable. And when, you know, when shit gets real, they're going to step up and do their bit. It's also good to give people a sense of purpose who are stuck at home, who've got nothing to do and they want to help. So it's really good for community cohesion. And also it's really good for us. It's helping keep us sane and it's giving us purpose. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like it's, it's I mean, my bike got fixed last, uh, last week 
um, it had been in the shop for two, three months. And the following day, our business, Bonafide Beards, was, uh, we were finally given our certificates that we could start delivering products as an essential service to clients. And I thought, hell, to, to save money for us um, and some sanity for myself, why don't I go out and deliver? So I started delivering packages and it's it's been great because I've been stuck inside. Uh, my customers have been stuck inside. And so it's a great way for me to engage with them, um, for us to kind of get to know each other again and say hi. And um, it's just nice to be back out there and yeah. helping in some way. And that's what that's what we want right now. Like people want to see a smiling face. You know, some people are, have been stuck at home in an apartment on their own and they only go to the grocery store. Um, so if, if people can go out there and, um, and help others, especially through this initiative that you guys are doing, it's amazing. Um, we, we were speaking, when I spoke to you on the phone the other day, like we're looking for something like that here in South Africa, that where if there's an app that is task orientated, where we could do something similar to that. Um, because I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there that are in need and they need something quick and effective and there's nothing there's no quicker way to get someone something than on a motorcycle yeah, yeah. Way. Oh. it's not easy i will say that it's not easy but um we've made it work and we've helped a lot of people we've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of jobs now over the last three weeks and and you know we've you know and people are really amazed and surprised and grateful you know and, and got some really mm. fantastic feedback saying thought we were about to run out of ppe in this care home today and suddenly these bikers turned up with boxes full of masks and now we're good for another week. It's fantastic. That's great. Shit. That's, um, yeah, I mean, did you ever think you'd be in this position? No, not in a million <laughs> years. I mean, I always knew that we were community minded and, you know, having a club and a community and the people that we've got, we were always involved in stuff. And obviously, you know, we, we were very involved with, um, you know, with Movember and men's mental health and prostate cancer through DGR. So we always yeah. wanted to do our bit. And we've always been very close to those kind of organizations that get stuff done. We, you know, we, we have a lot of collections into the military and into veterans. And so it kind of fits our culture to do this. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think as a whole, like motorcyclists, they are caring people. They're yeah. not, we don't fit into one category. We, we are nice people um, and we, we do want to help others just as like, if another motorcycle is broken down on the side of the road, we want to st we will stop and we do want to help. Um, so it's, it's great. Uh, really, it's, it's great to see what you guys are doing. And I'm sure for your community members, they're excited. And especially for those, the end user that you are helping, um, I'm sure is going to love a, a first cup of coffee from the bike shed when you guys open. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Um, so Dutch, we've only got two minutes left on the show. Um, so I think I'll close it out before we start. Yeah, great. But um, I really appreciate your time. Um, thanks so much for being on the show. Um, we'll keep an eye out for what you guys are doing and as well as Los Angeles. Kudos to you for moving there. I'm excited for you guys. And to everyone else on the show who's been watching, thank you so much. We are back on Wednesday night with Liam Cormier. Uh, Cornier from uh, the Cancer Bats. He's going to talk to us about uh, his trip on a mutt motorcycle uh, at Scram Africa last year. And then on Friday night, we've got Alan Shenton from Bonafide, and we're going to let you guys know what's in store for Bonafide for the rest of the year. 
And you can catch this podcast tomorrow on Apple Dutch. I'll send you a link as well. And thanks again. Cool. Pleasure. Okay. Cheers, everyone. Have a nice evening. Take care. See you. Bye.